This is The Guardian. In stories throughout history, seeing your doppelganger is usually a bad sign. Evil twins, doubles who try to take over your life, mysterious strangers in cases of mistaken identity. Thankfully, in real life, finding your doppelganger is a lot more fun. TikTok videos featuring the word doppelganger have over 3 billion views. There are plenty of apps that give you your celebrity lookalike. Mine are obviously Angelina Jolie, Kira Knightley and Emma Stone. You get the picture. And now, facial recognition software means you can even find an actual double. The probability is extremely high that you have somebody that looks almost identical to you. You have a very weird face, then it's more difficult to find a lookalike. Either way, the thing about doppelgangers is that despite looking almost identical, they aren't biologically related to us. So... What does make them appear so similar? How do totally different people end up with the same face? And can studying doppelgangers tell us anything about the age-old question of nature versus nurture? From The Guardian, I'm Madeline Finlay. No, I'm Madeline Finlay. And this is Science Weekly. Professor Manel Estella, you're director of the Josep Carreras Leukemia Institute and chairman of genetics at the University of Barcelona. Tell me, what got you interested in doppelgangers? We have been studying for a long time. What's more important, what we inherit from our parents or what we do in our lives, is this discussion about nature and, and nurture that has never been solved and, of course, uh, probably will never be solved. But uh, years ago, we show, for example, that uh, twins, real twins, monozygotic twins, they have the same genetics, but different epigenetics, different regulation of DNA, how it's controlled. So we thought, what about people that they look the same, but they're not twins? What they share? Why they, they had similar faces? And that was the, the start of our research. One thing that I did wonder was how you recruited the participants for your study, because we're not just talking about, oh, you know, you look a little bit like my friend. I've seen some of the pictures. These are people who really do look almost identical. The study uh, has taken a lot of time. So we started this more than seven years ago, and the study was published just last year. At uh, that time, it was very different than right now. Right now, people uh, can look online using different apps, trying to find your lookalike person, uh, your twin and using Insta, Instagram, and other um, approaches. But at that time, some years ago, this was not so popular. So what I decided to do was to contact a photographer that was taking pictures of this lookalike from an artistic view, okay, just for art. And I called him and said, I have a scientific interest to know what's going on with these people. Can you help me to contact these guys? And this is what, how we started the study. And how similar did they have to be to be classed as doppelgangers? Because... You know, like I said, to me, they looked really similar. But was there some way that you you classified the similarity between these people? We took the pictures of the faces and they were run using three different software recognitions of the face. These are the same softwares that are used, for example, by police or in the airport to open the gate to go in the plane 
So from this, we were able to highlight those lookalike that really were the most lookalike, those that really were almost identical. And as you started researching this, what kind of questions were you looking to answer? What were you expecting to see? We took a very naive approach to say, let's study everything that we can in these humans and let's see what the data tell us. So we used biological samples from all these uh, people around the world and we studied uh, three components. One is the genome, there's a DNA sequence. The other is called the epigenome, that the chemical marks that regulate the genome. And the third one was the microbiome. is the type of bacteria and viruses that these people may have. And let's see how much and which type of these components are shared by these people. So you were looking at their genes, their epigenetics and their microbiome. What did you find in these pairs? Well, we found that those lookalike that were the, the most similar they share a higher number of genetic variants. The genetic variants regulate the activity of our genes and they make us a little bit more slim or fat or, or tall or short, etc. So in these cases, the look-alike couples, they were paired together using only this uh, genetic variation. So they really are like a little bit like if they were uh, twins, real twins. So approximately how many genes were people sharing? What percentage of our genome would have to be shared between people for faces to look similar? This is always a, a very difficult um, question to answer because the definition of lookalike depends uh, of a percentage. So monozygotic twins that 100% identical. So they have 100% of the genome identical. And if we look at lookalikes in our study, they share more than... 50,000 points of information between them that are not shared with people that they are not look-alike. And these 50,000 genes, they mostly relate with uh, features of the face. And how is this happening? I mean, is it just kind of statistical chance that these people have similar genetics? We look in detail about these look-alike couples, and you can go back generations, many generations in their past, and there's no family relation at all. So they're not family in any way. And what we're thinking is that they're able to share these positions in the genome just by random chance. And this happens because right now we are um, a lot of people in the world. Uh, it's close to 8,000 million now. And our DNA has 6,000 million components. So the numbers are pretty similar. So uh, by combination of this, you can create just by random chance, as I said, individuals that share a lot of these uh, variations. And were you surprised by the result? Because, of course, it kind of does give you a bit of an insight into that nature versus nurture question. Yeah, so because my field of expertise is mostly epigenetics that relates about how the environment is talking to our cells, to our tissues. So uh, I would love that it was epigenetics, but not what clustered them together was really genetics. What we inherit from our father, from our mother, is really pushing us a lot. But could it be that there are people out there who are genetically similar to us, but potentially their epigenetics have ended up different? So we look different enough that we would never have been spotted as doppelgangers. Yes, and in fact, our study showed that 
they are clustered by genetics, but the difference that we can spot among them, they are associated with this difference in the epigenetic landscape and the microbiome profile. This is, is what provides a difference. That's the reason they are not fully identical, okay? What they do in their lives is what really can create changes between them. And also this can be even uh, greater as they age. After living uh, 60, 70 years, uh, we have a lot of exposition to many things in life, from smoking, contamination, different types of food, radiation, etc. And all of this probably helps to shape our face and many other things, of course, in our body. Now, I'm really interested to know how the pairs of people reacted with their doppelgangers, because, of course, they'd had the photographs taken, so they must have met before, but... Were they surprised by their doppelgangers? How did they react to finding they even share DNA? Yeah, so uh, remember that these uh, look alike, they are from around the world, from, sometimes from different continents even. And many of them did not know before taking the picture. And when they meet each other with similar faces, there's almost uh, a pretty instant connection about this. It's very similar to the connection that they have between twins. Sometimes they have a lot of things that they like to do together, etc. So the look-alike people, when they connect, they like each other, really, because they're liking themselves at the end. So, Manel, what are the possible applications of this new understanding that we have? There are two uh, applications that are very interesting, and they are not science fiction. They are right now already starting to be worked out and apply. One is that now, for the first time, looking at DNA sequence, you can draw a face. So you can construct the face of somebody. This can have an important uh, consequence for forensic medicine. Okay. So imagine you have a DNA from a crime and you don't know the suspect of this crime. So using this DNA, and now you can build a face. Okay. That can be useful for police and for, for agencies to, to solve many crimes. But you can also think the problem from the other side. Now from a face, from the picture of a face, you can infer part of the genome. So you can have an idea of the DNA of that person just looking at the face. And this can be useful in the screening of genetic disorders, for example. You can say this person, maybe she or he has a genetic disease, and we can uh, intercept the disorder before it has uh, a clinical phenotype. So we can do some kind of preventive genetics medicine. And could it be that the doppelgangers and doubles share anything outside of their physical appearance as well? We have seen that these look alike, they have other similarities beyond the shape of the face. Some relates to more complicated features, that some relates, for example, to behavior. And we have seen in the case of addiction, for example, to smoking and tobacco. And these people, they share also probably these genes that make them addict to behaviors like tobacco use, etc. Our study did not have the complete statistical power to address all the complex behavioral parameters, but at first look, others like the use of right hand, left hand, even um, some crude numbers about the intelligence or these kind of things, there was some relation there. But uh, <laughs> I would like to highlight that this required more uh, careful studies because this was not the, the main point of the, of the study. And of course, there would be innumerable ethical implications there and a very complex you know thing to do without bringing in all kinds of terrible biases absolutely so this type of studies 
uh, that we do and others are doing, they never should be used for any profiling of humans. They're used for other uh, interesting stuff, as I mentioned. They can be used to um, identify and solve crimes, all these mysteries. And the other way we can use the face to help people to combat disorders, uh, mainly genetic diseases. And this can happen in kids, even. So, Manel, given what you've learned here, I have to know, what's the probability that I'm going to have a doppelganger out there somewhere? The probability is extremely high that you have somebody that looks almost identical to you. Not only one, probably several. Of course, all of us who have a face that it's more or less average. So then, then it's more likely to have a lookalike. You have a very weird face, then it's more difficult to find a lookalike. And so what will you be looking at next? Yeah, so this is an interesting question. One, one thing that we're trying to do in this question of nature versus nurture is to see if people that they have the same external factors, at the end there is some convergence and they start looking the same. So you can imagine this popular saying that people that are wet for 40 years, at the end they look the same, the husband and the wife. Oh, they have similar faces. So is this because they eat the same every day, because they have the same environment, etc.? There is a way that external factors are able to change or modify our phenotype, our features. So it's something that I would like to, to address. Manel, thank you so much for coming on. It has been a pleasure. Thanks again to Professor Manel Estella. If you want to see some photos of the doppelgangers in the study, there's a link on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. The producer was Ned Carter-Miles, the sound design was by Joel Cox, and the executive producer was Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Thursday. See you then. This is The Guardian.